0: you on this Lord's Day, and I want to say thank you for worshiping the Lord through song, and now let's worship through the Word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, and if you have a copy of of the Bible with you, open it to the Gospel of Matthew, if you would, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 22. And as we're preparing to hear the Word here in the worship center on this Lord's Day, let me say, A warm, warm welcome to everyone who's in our contemporary worship service today. I'm really glad you're here this morning, as well as those who are joining us on TV and online. I'm really glad that you're a part of our service today as well. This morning, I want to uh, share a message. You see the title on your outline, it's called The Kingdom and the King. What is the kingdom of God like? A few years ago, on my 60th birthday, uh, my wife and girls gave me a wonderful special treat. Uh, they took me to see the smash hit musical Hamilton. Perhaps you know about this musical, uh, it premiered in 2015. It was written, the lyrics, the music, all of it, by a fellow named Lynn Manuel Miranda. It tells the story of the founding of our country through the life of one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. But it tells it in an interesting way. Uh, As Miranda Wood says, it tells the story of America then as told by America now. And so in this musical that's played, of course, in New York and Chicago and London and other places around the world, we saw it in Chicago when we went to see our youngest, Molly, Uh, the music in this show is a combination of rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, soul, traditional show tunes as it tells our founding story. The seventh song in the first act of Hamilton is sung by King George III, the King of England, whenever the colonies decided that we needed to be free. King George's song is three minutes long. It helps me frame the entirety of the rest of the message. I want you to see it. Watch the screen. You say the price of my love's not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry. In your tea Which you heard in the sea When you see me go by Quite so sad Remember we made an arrangement When you went away Now you're making me mad Remember despite our estrangement I'm your man You'll be back Soon you see you remember you belong to me You'll be back Time will tell you remember that I served you well Oceans rise Empires fall We have seen each other through it all And when push comes to shove I will send a fully armed battalion through before. I will fight the fight and And so, as I sat in the audience and watched this musical unfold, I was captured by this song of the king. I was so fascinated at a couple of levels. One, I was fascinated at the way they presented him. They presented King George III as something of a buffoon, did they not? Someone who was out of touch, didn't understand the situation, didn't realize the colonies were never coming back, and overestimated the power of his armies. He was just a buffoon, and they presented him as such. It also was absolutely fascinating to me to watch the response of the people in the crowd because everybody found him to be a source of of amusement and laughter rippled across the room. And with 246 years now of perspective looking back, we look at this king, the one who was on the most powerful throne in the world at that time, and we look at him with an interesting mixture of amusement and antipathy, And I'll bet everybody in the room is saying, I sure am glad we won the war and I sure am glad we don't have a king. Is that what you're saying? I am. And there is something in our DNA as Americans because of the way our country was born, the very cultural air that we have breathed, for almost 250 years that says a king? No, thank you. Now, I must admit, for a president to simply write off the books, billions of dollars in debt without the approval of Congress, we may be closer to an autocracy than we think. (laughs) But that's a subject for another day, is it not? (laughs) I don't think that's in the text this morning. But my point is this. My point is this, in the Western world and in the United States particularly, there is something in all of us that says, a king? No thanks. So when we come to read the Gospel of Matthew, As we have been doing over the last several days. In fact, we're nearing the end. And and then we'll read the book of Galatians. And if you're not in on that journey, pull out your phone, text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up and join with hundreds and hundreds of us as we're reading God's word together a chapter a day. As we have read through the gospel of Matthew, something likely has occurred. Because of this predisposition in us culturally, politically, to say to a king, no thanks, it likely produced some dissonance because all throughout the book of Matthew, we bump into the notion of a king and the kingdom. Here's the first truth. Write it on your outline today. The first truth is that kingdom and king are major themes in the gospel of Matthew. Now, if you haven't been reading with us or you're new to Ingleside today, or or even if you've been reading, let me just remind you. We won't look at all the references, but I want you to see the way the book begins and the way the book ends, and I think you'll agree with me it's a major theme. Look at the very first words in Matthew. It begins this way. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who was David? He was the great king of Israel to whom God made covenant promises that one of his descendants would reign on his throne forever. Jesus is introduced, first sentence, as a king. Then in chapter 2, the visit of the wise men. You know this, at the Christmas time. And when the wise men come to Jerusalem, they say to Herod the king, where is he who has been born? Here it is, king of the Jews. When you get to chapter 4, a summary of Jesus' first preaching. Look at it. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming. What was he proclaiming? Look at it. The gospel of the kingdom The first words of the Sermon on the Mount, what do they say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. So when you read Matthew, even in those first chapters, it's there again and again. This is a book about the king and his kingdom. So what about when you get to the end of the book? We'll look at it in chapter 21, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What does it say? Matthew says, this is to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah, which says, here it is, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey and on a coat, the foal of a beast of burden. When Jesus is then put on trial a few days later before Pilate, what does the governor ask him? Here it is again. Are you the king of the Jews? And then when the soldier mocked him before his crucifixion. Look at all the royal imagery in what they did. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown, a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they put a reed like a scepter in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail! King of the Jews. And when they finally put Jesus on a cross, what did the placard that was nailed above his head say? It said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So do you feel the dissonance? There's something in every one of us that says a king, no thanks. And yet when we read the gospel of Matthew, it's almost on every page. I want to introduce you to the king and tell you about his kingdom. So that leads to truth number two. Write it in on your outline. I hope you're checking with me this morning. We learn from Matthew's gospel then that Jesus' example, Jesus' example shows us that he's a different kind of king. And Jesus' teaching tells us what the kingdom is like. You see, across the ages, what do most kings require of their subjects Most kings require of their subjects that their subjects be willing to die in order to keep the king on the throne. But the king that's revealed in Matthew is willing to die so that his subjects can live and be forgiven and have eternal life. He's a different kind of king. And then he tells us over and over again what his kingdom is like. One of the places where that gets focused is in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus gives us some parables of the kingdom. And over and over again it says the kingdom of heaven is like. So look at it. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. What does it mean? It means it has very small beginnings but over time its influence will become very large. He says the kingdom is like leaven that a woman would mix into a loaf of bread. What's the lesson? The kingdom will eventually have pervasive influence all around the world just like leaven does in bread. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, or a merchant in search of fine pearls. The lesson is the same in both. And that is, once you discover the treasure, or once you find the pearl of great price, it's so valuable. You sell everything you have so that you can have the thing of value, being part of the kingdom. And then, finally, in chapter 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. It means across the years as the gospel net is cast and many are drawn in, not all will be genuine believers and at the end of the age there will be a great separation between the good fish and the bad, between the righteous and the wicked, between those who are saved and those who are lost those who experience eternal life, and those who experience eternal death. So now, are you tracking with me this morning? In our cultural heritage is this picture of a a buffoonish but vindictive king. And when you go back and read our Declaration of Independence, it says words like these, the history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations. And then it lists them one after the other. Our revolution was essentially against a king. And so that's built into us. And yet the Bible reveals to us a different kind of king King Jesus. And he describes his kingdom. And that brings us to chapter 22. It's another story from Jesus about the kingdom. Let's read it together. And then I want to just draw out five lessons as we wrap up. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven, there it is, the kingdom, may be compared to a king. There it is. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. In the ancient world, there were often two invitations. One went out, essentially a save the date. I want you to come to the party. And then when everything was ready, the second invitation came. This is the second invitation. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. And then the story takes a surprising turn. It says, but they would not come. And so the king sort of thought, well, maybe they didn't get the message. Maybe the servants weren't clear. Maybe I didn't communicate well. So look at verse 4. So again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So he sent, a, he sent out the message again. And then the story takes an even more unexpected turn. Verse 5 says, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And then it gets even worse. Some not only neglected the invitation, but others actively rejected the invitation. Verse 6, while the rest seized seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So I want to ask you a question. If you had been the king, how would that have made you feel? Well, we see how it made him feel in verse 7. Look at it. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 9. Go therefore to the main roads. It literally means the crossroads, the place where the people gather. Go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. The king is essentially saying... I am going to have a party. And I want you to go get some folks and bring them in. Look at verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they had found, both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. That would have been a perfect place for the story to end. Right there. You know, I mean, the king throws a party. People unwisely refuse invitation. He takes offense. He punishes them. He brings in people who didn't expect to be invited. They had a big party. All is great. That would have been a good place. But Jesus didn't stop there. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how would you get in here without a wedding garment? And when he asked the man that question, the guy was, Scripture says, speechless. And then verse 13 says, the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the first time you read this, you think, boy, this is pretty severe punishment for wearing the wrong thing to a wedding party. And then Jesus concludes, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what's the king teaching us about the kingdom here? Write it in. Five things. Here they are. First of all, we don't need to miss, because this is just one of many times in the New Testament, that the Bible tells us that to participate in God's kingdom is like going to a wedding party. A wedding party that is characterized by love By joy, by abundance, by food, by family, by friends, by singing, by dancing. A wedding, when it's all that it should be, should just be a great, joyful celebration. And the Bible says the kingdom of God is like that. Now, how many of you have been to weddings? You get, you sense the joy in them, do you not? You know, whenever I do a wedding up in our chapel and I get to the end and I say that by the authority vested in me, I pronounce you husband and wife, sir, you may kiss your bride. And then they turn around and I introduce them to everybody in the room. Guess what almost always happens when they're introduced? What happens? Do you know? Man, people just <laughs> applaud and cheer. And that bride and groom go skipping down the aisle and off to have a great celebration of the love and the life they're gonna have as husband and wife. And then oftentimes they go have a party. Somewhere, You know, a couple of years ago when our oldest got married, uh, man, we had a party with she and her bride afterwards. I think they have a picture for the screen. Uh, look at it. Whenever they come into the room, you think they're excited? Just a little party there. And then, of course, they danced. I mean, Meredith there and Bradley dancing. And, and they even got me out on the dance floor. Yes, these, these Baptist feet can dance a little bit. It's only a little bit, but it can happen. Yeah, take that off quickly, please. (laughs) Take that off quickly. What I want you to see, though, is we had a party. And listen, don't miss it. Jesus said, when you understand the kingdom correctly, it's like coming to a wedding party and not to a funeral. And so I want to tell you, whenever you get ready to come to church every week, As you're driving here, I want you to remind yourself I'm going to a party. I'm not going to a funeral. And bring with you the joy and the love that there is for the Lord who has welcomed us into the abundance of his kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. If you wake up on a Sunday morning and you have a heavy or a broken heart because of a great loss in your life, of course you ought to come and you're going to find tenderness and mercy and care and love. But the God of grace is going to turn your tears into shouts of joy. He's going to take the ashes and turn them into something good in your life. Don't miss it today. Our king says his kingdom is like going to a wedding party. Is that a good place to say amen? Amen. I thought so. Look at number two. The second truth here, to refuse the invitation to come to the wedding party is to dishonor the king. You see those people who either neglected or rejected the invitation? They weren't just saying I don't want to come to your party. They were saying, I don't respect you or your son enough to show up to your celebration. That always has consequences. Here's the third truth that this story teaches us. And that is now everyone, everyone is invited To come to the party. When you put this in historical context, the gospel message first came to the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. His apostles were Jewish. Most of his first disciples were Jewish. And he called the entire nation to follow him as the Messiah King. But when so many rejected him, the gospel then was shared with Gentiles and eventually it's to be shared with every person on the planet and one day around his throne will be people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. Let's bring it up to now. Guess what that means? When you and I are living our lives, we ought to invite everyone to come to the kingdom party. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, rich or poor, lots of education, little education, Jew or Gentile, black or white, Asian or Hispanic, man or woman. It doesn't matter who you are. The Lord says, come to the party. That's a good place to say amen too, don't you think? That means you and me can come. The fourth truth, write it in. And this comes out of those last verses, verses 11 through 14. It's when you come to the party, you must come clothed in the garment of grace, the garment of grace provided by the king. You see, uh, there's good evidence that in the ancient world, whenever the king would throw a big party, he would session some of his servants at the door and as the common people would come in, they would give to them a wedding garment that befitted the royal occasion they were about to attend. So the king not only invited them to come and prepared for them to come, but he provided the clothing for them. Just think about it. Going to a party, and you walk up, and the guy says, oh, I got your size. You look like a, about a 42 or 43 long, something like that. I got that right over here. And they give you a tux. It fits perfectly. Shoes, studs, everything. You're ready for the party. Ladies, you walk up, and they say, got something for you, too. They got a beautiful dress, shoes, bag. I mean, the whole thing. And you put that on, and you come into the party. But there was this one guy who came. And when he came in, they offered him the clothing. And he said, no, I i, I don't think I'm going to wear that. I like what I got on. I'm going to. I'm going to wear what I want to wear here to this party. And later when the king himself came in and scanned the room, he saw this guy. And he said, friend, why don't you have on the wedding garment? And the Bible says the guy was speechless. He had no excuse because he had simply rejected the king's gift of the garment of grace. So now listen, in our day when we have made an idol of expressive individualism, It's a worldview that says, in order for me to be authentic, whatever is on the interior of my life, whatever desire or feeling or emotion within me, I must be able to express outwardly in any way I choose in order to live authentically. And if anyone says, well, that's not right, that's not best, that's not good, you ought to choose a different way, then the problem is with them and not with me because expressive individualism is the highest goal. That's what the guy without a wedding garment said when he came into the party. He said, man, I want to come to the party. I want to get in on the party. But I want to dress the way I want to dress. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live by my standards. I want to live by my morals. I want to set the rules for me. I want to do it my way. But I want to come to the party. And the scripture says, the king said, no, take him and Cast him into outer darkness. I want him to come to the party. But he's got to come wearing the righteousness of Christ. And a life transformed by that. Are you with me? So there's one more truth then. And that is our response to the king's invitation has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. Consequences. Now, some would say, uh, "Wow, well, Book of Matthew is all about the King and the Kingdom." But what about the rest of the Bible? Well, let me just take you, as we're wrapping up, over to Revelation chapter 19, in the last book of the Bible, and it brings together the wedding and the King again. Look at it. In Revelation 19, 6, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. And here it is, for the marriage of the Lamb, the wedding party, Of the Lamb of Jesus has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And look, she's got on the wedding garment. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And that fine linen is the righteous deeds and life of a person who's been transformed by God's grace. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in that same chapter... Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. That's a crown like a king and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Would you say his name out? Loud, it is what? Say it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, what if the King was always wise, was never mistaken was always just, was always righteous, was always loving, was always fair. And what if the king laid down his life that we might have life in him? Would you be willing to follow that kind of king? I would. And I hope you will, too. Come to the party. Bow before the king. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the joy, the love, the hope, the forgiveness that's in Christ and in his kingdom. Help us invite everybody we know to come to the party. And, Lord, I pray some here today or some listening in who've never said yes to the king will lay down their pride and their Anything else they're holding on to that would keep them away. And I pray today they would say, King Jesus, be on the throne of my life. I want to live for your glory, Lord Jesus. This is our prayer today, O Lord. And help us live in the power, the strength, the joy, the love of our King, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.